Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, maybe we won't start with uh, Ukraine today. Maybe what we should do is talk about the first conviction in the January 6th uh, trials, because uh, it's a very uh, interesting case, and it comes at the same time as some kind of uh, filing or something or other. I can't quite uh, uh, get it straight what it is, uh, where the um, uh, the lawyers on the Jan- on the January sixth committee are signaling. We talked a little bit about this about the the case that they want to make against. Uh, against the president and how they're building the case against uh, Donald Trump. Um, Because the case that they're trying to build, uh, they are now backdating their investigation to basically right after uh, election day 2020, and they're trying to follow the money. That what they want to seem to want to establish is that this giant fundraising machine was started uh, to raise money to contest the election. And either uh, this machine, it's important to understand because it was the um, it was the sort of precursor to the growing hysteria that then led to the Stop the Steal rally that then led to the storming of the Capitol. Or they want to use it to say, all the evidence is that the election was stolen. So everybody who tried to raise money on it uh, was committing fraud um, because they knew that the election hadn't been stolen, which seems to be the argument that's being made by the January 6th committee about Trump. So many people told him the election wasn't stolen, that he knew the election wasn't stolen. He kept saying it was stolen, so he was defrauding uh, the American people. Um, so we have, on the one hand, a great success, which was this conviction on all counts of this uh, first a uh, guy, guy Refit or Refit, um, who uh, showed up at the Capitol. Uh, he had a gun. He had uh, weaponry. He encouraged people to break in. He sort of led. He led people through the building, and then somehow was you know gassed in some fashion, brought down, arrested. Uh, when he went home, he actually threatened his own children. Said if they went to the authorities to talk about what he did. They would be traitors and, you know, traitors get killed. So he was convicted not only of carrying a weapon to, you know, um, uh, trespassing, uh, threatening, um, you know, trying to disrupt the good working order of the United States, but also for threatening his own children. And his son testified uh, in, in court. And apparently that was a lot for him. And he actually sort of burst into tears he did not testify. His lawyer only made a three-minute opening statement and then called no witnesses. Uh, either that means the case was so open and shut beyond belief that uh, that there was no possible way for him to make an argument, or he knew that the guy was crazy and you know would have hung himself. I mean, I don't really know. But so you have this this success. It's the first case, and they get a conviction on all accounts, all counts. And then they are uh, promulgating this, I think, absolutely cockamamie theory uh, that require that will require us to think that people did not believe what they say they believe, and that they knowingly, uh, or you know, that they knowingly uh, promulgated a fantasy that Trump had won the election in an effort to uh, either, uh, number one, raise money under false pretenses and commit fraud against the unknowing hoi polloi who sent them dollars based on their emails, and then knowingly committed a fraud by by convincing them to come to Washington and create a riot. And I think this just goes like head on into, you can't know somebody else's state of mind. People have First Amendment rights. They're allowed to say that an election was stolen. Um, they're allowed to express a false opinion if you think it's false and all of that. And that you you can't, you know, there's no way unless you find a piece of paper that says 
that someone said, I know that the election was stolen, but I'm still going to raise money fraudulently. This is not a case you can win in a court of law. And I'm not entirely sure it's a case you can win in the court of public opinion either, except with extreme partisans who really, you know, are deep in the weeds on this matter. Um, there's a danger there, too, I think. And that, that's if Democrats want to go down this path and argue in the court of public opinion, setting aside the legal issues that the, that the so-called green team is looking at with all the money and the fundraising and the fraud claims. Democrats raise more dark money, more more sort of shady uh, organizations established to to fundraise on behalf of candidates and causes than than Republicans. And if they want to establish a precedent in the public's mind that all these kind of shady backroom dealings and the money spent on it and 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 the the kind of messages that are promoted, which are often kind of crazy, paranoid, lefty versions of some of the crazy, paranoid right wing versions of stuff we've seen go right ahead because they're going to that's not necessarily the Pandora's box that they they want to open. I do think that it's really I'm to your point, I think, uh, John, the thing that the American people are going to see is this claim that people aren't allowed to know their own minds. The false consciousness argument here is really pulling a lot. They're trying to make it pull a lot of weight. And people feel condescended to when they're told you don't know how to think properly. You were duped. We're going to tell you and punish the people who duped you when they actually believe in a cause. Even wait, if wait, 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 wait. Who are we talking about? Are we talking about January 6th rioters, the average rioter? No, we're talking the about the people no. who gave money as a result. So we're talking about the green team now, the, the people following the money, not the people who were yeah, properly the arrested. investigators on the January yeah. 6th committee who are who are called the green team. And what they've done is, yeah, they're they're they are Rather than investigating January 6th, they're going back to November. To fundraising groups. To, and and starting say, then, yeah. I mean, since when can't politicians raise money on lies? Right. I mean, well, that can't, is, campaigns, that's the whole can't model. campaign. I mean, I mean, campaigns. I mean, you can you can you can promise anything under the sun that, you know, you can't accomplish. You can accuse your your opponent of things that aren't entirely true. And all this is done in an effort to raise money. I mean, okay, well, that, kinda, that would be but I kind of struggle to see how that doesn't how the court of public opinion somehow comes down against the idea that people who are raising money on how raise money before January 6th and after January 6th on the notion here that this is, you know, some sort of an elite conspiracy are somehow going to win public sympathy. No, it's not. It's not mass public sympathy. It is. And you suggested the minds of, of adult partisans, the only adult partisans who believed that anything other than Donald Trump incited a riot on January 6th and had every intention of doing so for months ahead of time are rabid Republicans. No, 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 no. Noah, you're talking about now you're really now you're really going off in a different direction. What what this green team wants to do is say Trump and the Trump people raised two hundred million dollars. Uh, to contest the idea, you know, to contest the election after it happened, knowing that the election had been properly conducted and was won. And they are therefore guilty of fraud because they convinced, um, you know, low information people of things and made arguments about things that they knew to be untrue. So there are two massive problems with this. Number one, I know plenty of people who think the election was stolen and uh, are very intelligent, highly, you know, literate people. And they believe the election was stolen. And the problem is that there are 500 different ways in which they believe the election was stolen. If they don't believe that the votes were, you know, the ballots were manufactured in Fulton County, uh, in the, uh, you know, uh, basketball arena or wherever, wherever that was. They believe that the laws were changed during COVID to privilege, to unjustly privilege Democratic voters. Uh, if they don't believe that Maricopa County had, you know, the Dominion changed the vote totals on the machines, um, they believe that uh, uh, motor voter itself uh, is a form of electoral fraud and designed to give Democrats a leg, an unfair leg up against Republicans. And therefore, when the result goes against them, the election was stolen, that the entire 2010s are a decade about the ways in which Democrats decided to steal elections 
and they came to fruition in 2020. This is what people believe. They say they believe it because Biden didn't have any rallies and no one showed up and who could vote for that guy. And the numbers are fishy. How did he get 81 million people to vote for him? I don't believe it, they think. Now, they think this. The modality, the what the process was by which Biden and the Democrats stole the election in their eyes is immaterial. It is the entire atmosphere and a conspiracy between them and the media and electoral officials and everybody else that turned a blind eye to 10,000 different things that added up to the theft of the election. And the idea that you can say that all of those people and the people who raised money for Trump knew and know that Biden lost the election but raised money anyway is preposterous and infamous. And it goes to this is exactly why, I'm sorry to say this because it sounds weird, but it's exactly why we have a doctrine of freedom of speech, which is that unless you can prove that somebody knows that they're speaking a falsehood that has, that will somehow create a tort against somebody else, right? A libel, a slander, something like that with malice aforethought, not knowledge that they are saying something wrong in order to injure somebody's reputation or their ability to make money or their job or something like that. They have an almost unlimited right to speech. And this is, the Congress of the United States is going to advance an incredibly aggressive argument that is fundamentally an attack on free speech. Can I just add to my point? And it goes to your point too. So people are raising money on, uh, to fight against the quote, don't say gay bill. The bill doesn't say don't say gay. Fraud. I mean, it, you can do this. You can literally do this from morning till night about everything and, and anything. You know what it reminds me of, though, from a from a legal strategy standpoint and the way that they're talking about it and, oh, they're being duped psychologically and financially. I mean, they've even interviewed whoever put the porta whoever was paid to put porta potties on on the ellipse during. <laughs> I mean, they're they're very thorough. It reminds me of the televangelist years. Remember how the feds went after? Well, the prosecutors went after televangelists for defrauding the public with their claims. And they you know, Jim Baker was was actually convicted of wire fraud and some other things. Um, so there are successful cases of prosecuting people claiming this. But once you get down into the details of what actually wins these cases, it's kind of often abstruse legal doctrines about how you handle money and how you, you know, your how you do your accounting and whatnot. And I can't imagine that the, that interviewing the porta potty company is going to lead to this path that they think it is. I'm I'm just curious from a political standpoint, if they're just trying to say we're being completely thorough here. They could do that without sort of promoting this idea that people were defrauded and and that that's actually a legal path that should be pursued. I, I don't understand the optics of it, to be honest, because they like, have plenty of they have plenty of heads yeah. on a pike with these guys who were violent and insurrectionist and broke and trespass criminally trespassed and harmed our police officers like, yeah, everybody wants to see those guys go to prison. And 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 if based on this prosecution, successful prosecution, hundreds of them are going to go to prison. I mean, you know, this establishes the jury was out for three hours. Like th these are this is th many of these are going to be open and shut cases. Uh, and so, you know, the question is going to be when you come to whether or not somebody who just wandered into the building after the other rioters and was arrested for trespass and is up for criminal trespass, whether he can throw himself on the mercy of the court and say, I really didn't know what was going on. I was just part of a big crowd and I'm really sorry that it happened or whatever. I don't know. Um, but um, I think this is a very uh, upsetting and disheartening development for those of us uh, who believe that January 6th was, you know, a disgraceful and disgusting moment that Trump did abet and incite and that I, I was hoping that this committee would produce a document, a sort of historical document that would, you know, explain what had happened, you know, on the two days and then on the day of and how all this happened and what the, you know, what was going on inside the White House, if at all possible, so we know what kind of blame to attach to Trump aside from the general 
environmental blame and all of that. And then it would sit there and it would be a document that would be very hard to dismiss. Well, I hate to because, say it. If everybody, it was, yeah. if everybody wanted that dispassionate document um, that didn't seek to score political points, then everybody should have supported the uh, independent bipartisan commission to investigate uh, January 6th. It was adamantly opposed by Republicans and Republican supporters in the press. They didn't want that. They wanted a partisan charade that they could point to and say is a partisan charade. Yeah. They got it. But look, I I'm saying this is what I wanted. I'm not saying it's what everybody wanted. And I think if that's the case, I didn't detect the January 6th committee has fallen into their trap, has fallen into Jim Jordan's trap, has fallen into the Trump partisans trap. They have walked, you know, they have gone into that, you know, briar patch because what they're going to do is produce the document that Republicans are not going to have to take seriously if they overreach in the way that it appears that they are potentially overreaching. Okay, well, I just won't I won't shed a single crocodile tear for any Republican who points to the partisan document they wanted and says this is a partisan document. No, I'm not shedding. I'm talking about me and I'm talking about American history and I'm talking about like people in the middle. I'm not talking about, you know, Louis Gohmert and, you know, Jim Jordan and uh, Chip Roy and people. I'm not. I'm talking about people who I'm talking about like the ultimate responsibility, which is, you know, uh, it's very hard under these circumstances to conduct these things in the in in the right way. But they had choices and they clearly decided uh, that their version of being thorough and proper was to attempt to extirpate the entire Trump movement and to somehow come up with a theory of the case and try to demonstrate in the theory of the case that every active Republican involved who involved in Trumpism could somehow be discredited by their committee. Um, Why else would you go after these? You know, it's like you're going to name and shame every single person who sent out a fundraising email and say that they were partially responsible for January 6th. I'm sure that's going to give MSNBC people and that lots of, you know, deep feels about how, yes, now it's all out there and every all these people have, are, you know, are, are have been shamed by history. And yet, if you if you do, if you paint with too broad a brush and you and you indict too many people and you do that kind of thing, as I say, you end up discrediting your you discrediting your cause. It's like when people, you know, when people when somebody issues an indictment on 822 counts of something. Um, Often that case falls to pieces because the jury says, oh, come on. Like, really? They committed 822 separate crimes? It sounds like you were just just like threw everything at the wall to see what what would stick with us. And I don't like I'm not going for that. There's also there are also two trends that I think this this approach uh, reveals about the Democratic Party right now and and the left more broadly. First of all, it's very worrisome in terms of free speech. This is political protected political speech that they are now actively trying to undermine by claiming it has an ill effect on the people who might hear it or see it. And that again, like that's that's a path you do not want to go down if you actually understand what the First Amendment protects. So there's that. But there's also been this trend for years now where whenever there's a cause that the left deems uh, morally uh, uh, legitimate and you don't sign on or if they or if they double cause to be morally illegitimate and you do sign on, they do want to publicly shame you. you know, been all these cases where some hacker goes in and says, look, this guy gave 20 bucks to not allow, you know, to, to support the baker who didn't want to bake a cake for a gay couple. And we should absolutely out him. He should be fired. There is a kind of mob mentality about people who don't conform to the left's view of what is a morally righteous cause. And I get a whiff of that here. I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but th- there's a whiff of this. We are going to we are going to expose anyone who's part of this vast organization because we because Donald Trump is bad. And I don't don't disagree that Donald Trump was bad. He was bad for the country. He, you know, I, he was politically punished. Uh, I really hope he doesn't run again for a number of reasons. However, to punish the people who supported him in this way with this kind of argument makes me uneasy on those grounds. You're also allowed to take a dollar bill and light it on fire. I mean, if you're somebody who is going to be subject or, uh, or appealed to 
on these grounds with these fundraising letters and you don't have the good sense to figure out that 90% of that money is going to go into the pocket of the person who sent it to you, which is still the case. Like, you know, these committees and these things, they raised all this money that was never spent. That was never spent because there was nothing to be done with it. So this was some kind of, you know, expression of fealty to the cause, but it's not like they hired, you know, Davis Polk and then ate up all of Davis Polk's hours between November and January with the $200 million they raised to get the best lawyers in America to build these cases. That's not what happened. Mostly there weren't cases or the cases were thrown out. They didn't, that money was not, did not go to any good use. And those people have every reason to be angry if they find out about it, that their money was wasted or stuffed into somebody else's pocket. But, you know, the, um, the fine print on these gifts and giving, when you go into them, if you look at them, says, don't expect any of this to go. I mean, it's not like, like all the, I know, and no one reads the terms of service things where you click agree, 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 but they're still contractual. They're still written to protect the person who does them. And, and they are contractually free of, of, of guilt. Uh, in these matters, though they they should not be. It's a classic problem with direct mail or any kind of direct marketing for political causes. That um, there are no there are no limits that are established on how much administrative fees people get for doing them, and it can be close to a hundred percent. Well, and that's so that's the what yeah, yeah that's the wire fraud look. And again, like the left doesn't want to go down this rabbit hole because Black Lives Matter is standing there as a huge target for exactly these things is already being investigated for this. There's the distinction between campaign finance law allows people doesn't uh, say you can't say false things like Abe said, you can you can raise money off of the opposing the don't say gay bill, which doesn't say don't say gay. However, wire fraud comes into play if you do promise, as you say, John, that 50% of your donations will go to X, Y, or Z, and instead it all goes to buy, you know, Patrice Cullors a mansion in Malibu. So that that's the fraud, and that's actually what Jim and Tammy Fa- Jim Baker was was uh, convicted of. The feds go after that as a form of fraud, and so maybe they'll find some evidence of this there. But these were pretty big. I don't know. I've seen one or two of these fundraising emails and and letters. They're they're pretty straightforward. But if they find fraud in that case, fine, let them go for it. But I don't understand. Those cases are really hard to, again, to persuade the public as being worthy of of the time and effort they're putting into when you do have, in this particular case, everybody wondering what what was going on at the top? What was Trump doing on the day itself? We still don't know all the information about that. Yeah, it's total mission creep. I mean, if you if you to start with a, a, a investigation into what Trump was doing on that day, and end up with a wire fraud case about uh, where the, where the money went that was right. It's not even mission creep. It's just a, it's a total pivot. But it, it's the nature of independent or special prosecutions that they engage in mission creep because the cases that they start pursuing always turn out not to be open and shut and more ambiguous than they want. And so they often go off in ancillary directions. Like this is the case with the amazing stories about why the the um, the uh, investigation into Donald Trump's supposed fraud by the um, Manhattan district attorney has fallen apart. Um, hired people, they had forty lawyers working on the case, and um, and the idea was, okay, we'll 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 get this guy Weisselberg. He'll come in and he'll sing and he'll say, now we're going to show you how all this you know worked because I don't want to go to jail or Michael Cohen decided to sing and say this is how it all worked not going to jail and from what i can tell from reading extensively into these matters what weisselberg probably said or what the lawyers probably gleaned is that um if trump is guilty of the frauds that they think that he's guilty of every person in real estate in the united states is guilty of comparable frauds it all has to do with how you evaluate the value of illiquid assets and w- and how you go to banks and seek to raise money off your illiquid assets. And there was a key phrase in one of these New York Times stories that said they wanted to make a case that Trump had defrauded the banks with these uh, statements about the value of his companies when he went to them for loans. That's what they wanted to do. And then they discovered that the banks had made money off the loans that they gave Trump. 
banks had profited off the loans and no jury was going to convict even Trump, even a hostile jury to Trump, if he went before them and said, how can you say that I committed fraud? They made money off the loans they gave me. I didn't take any money from them. They came off better than they were before. If they hadn't, you know, if they, they hadn't given me the money, they would have been in worse shape. And that's part of that mission creep problem. You have a theory of the case, you put someone on it, and it doesn't pan out the way you want it to. You don't get what you want. And then you start saying, well, I, I, I don't want to waste all my time, or really my purpose here is to secure a conviction however I can get a conviction. Let's see if we can get him on picking his feet in Poughkeepsie. You know, I mean, that, let, let's see let's see what minor crime we can establish. You know, in, in, in some of these cases, it'll be that he lied on, you know, that people lie on this document, US 1001, which is where you, if you, it's what you do when you, when you sign your tax form. It's a, it's a generic thing where you swear that the document that you have submitted to the government is true. And, you know, um, sometimes convictions in a lot of these cases come down to somebody signing of a US 1001, one line out of 250 lines on some document. And, and then they say, ah, you see, you, 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 uh, you lied to the government um, in this way. You swore to something that was not true. But those are dirty cases, and juries don't like them, and judges often throw them out. I mean, it's it, so uh, the Trump, the pursuit of Trump in that way, if the January 6th committee had not determined or decided or had whoever it was decided that what they wanted to do was make a legal case to try to bust Trump to make or to, or to encourage the Justice Department to indict Trump on his behavior or others, but had simply focused themselves on what happened and issued the document without an eye toward this prosecution notion, they might not have ended up going down some dangerous rabbit holes in which I think they are potentially going to be self-discrediting because of the free speech problem, because of all kinds of things. And Christy, you mentioned the dark money thing. I mean, this is a very interesting point because for a long time, dark money uh, was uh, to the benefit of Republicans. And in 2020, Democrats didn't just raise more money than Republicans in dark money. They raised half a billion dollars more than Republicans. They raised, I believe, a billion four. Republicans raised 900 million. Like, this is no joke. That is not, you know, like, oh, they raised $10 million more. Like, they, they generated a fundraising machine, the likes of which no one has ever seen exactly. I'm not quite sure what it did with the money. I'm not sure where the money went. Or it what tends to dole it out was. to smaller groups, smaller underfunded groups and on a variety of progressive issues. They just, right. they just basically, you know, you know, they just stand there and like <laughs> yeah. throw cash at people. Um, anyway, I just think, you know, this is just something to watch because uh, their effort, again, their effort to do what they can to make sure that Trump doesn't run again in 2024 by whatever means they can prevent it um, may have a boomerang effect in a, you know, stiffening his spine to do so and be uh, giving him ballast with Republicans who might want to turn the other way by saying, look at what they, they just, they will net, they won't stop. They won't stop. They will never stop pursuing him by whatever Javertian means they have. And it's all unjust. And um, you may, if you make do something that makes that argument arguable, that helps Trump, doesn't hurt Trump. Maybe it won't help him with the general public. I don't know, you know, with the people who aren't Republican primary voters. That's where Noah, you know, um, that's where I don't know. But um, I just thought that was, a, it's an interesting set of um, circumstances uh, that is worth exploring. Speaking, by the way, of discoveries of fraudulent behavior, there is a jaw-dropping story uh, in the New York Times today about um, pandemic relief spending uh, in, in particular in, uh, in Minneapolis, um, where uh, hundreds of millions of dollars are being funneled to sort of 
soup soup kitchen like making lunch for the for the um you know for people who uh, you know needed <laughs> needed lunch money or you know, needed lunches made for them and some uh basically some uh nonprofit then was shuttling money to a subsidiary business that claimed to be making 5000 lunches a day um, and was in a uh, second floor apartment in a housing project. And the neighbor said to some cop, something like, I I've never seen any lunches come out of, <laughs> out of there. And they made, you know, literally they made, um, they claimed to be making 5,000 lunches a day and they either got, anyway, something like $179 million was um, spent in, in the Twin Cities alone on uh on this food program um it's it's sort of jaw-dropping anyway this that's was, well worth well it's also interesting because it, it it shows something that i think again is the democratic party likes to cite it's it's uh betty you know a social justice oriented nonprofit infrastructure for all the good it, they do and they do often structure federal aid to funnel through these groups and in this case this is what uh was happening. So these groups are pretty easy to form. It's not that hard to form to file the paperwork to form a 501c3 nonprofit. So if you want to commit fraud, you do that. And then you can take 15% in the case of this Minneapolis uh, situation, 15% of what comes through the door you keep in so-called administrative fees. That's a lot of money if you're not spending all the other money on the other side either. And it, it, um, it incentivizes a kind of grift among groups that might uh, otherwise have to hustle more to raise their own money rather than just getting federal handouts as nonprofits to to distribute it. So this middleman of the kind of well-intentioned nonprofit, first of all, it harms real good nonprofits who are doing good work, but it also it, it reveals a kind of attitude about how the federal government distributes all this money and, and the lack of oversight. I think Biden in his State of the Union claimed he's going to, you know, oh, well, I'm going to uh, appoint an investigator now. It's like you should have actually been following the money the minute you started appropriating it. That's a real problem with these sorts of large scale uh, transfers of, of yeah, money. When you spend trillions of dollars, uh, a lot of money is going to get, you know, it's a classic waste, fraud and mismanagement thing. And, and uh, you know, when when you when you create an entire funding stream of trillions of dollars, you know, I don't know what you should expect, but if say you, you expect that 10% of it will be, will disappear into people's pockets, the larger amount of money that is, I mean, 10% of 10% of $6 trillion is $600 million. That's going to be just straight up stolen. And, and that's what you should expect. It's one of the reasons that you want to keep these programs small in, in part to discourage, because how, how do you even keep track of it? Who's going to keep track of it? How many people, how many auditors can you possibly put on that amount of money that is being thrown around? It's um, impossible uh, even to begin to imagine. Um, what's not impossible to begin to imagine is the service rendered by our friends at Novo. Because fortune favors the bold, the strong, the brave, and for your business to break out of anything holding you back, you need business checking as brave as you are. And this is why we they are introducing Novo Business Checking, powerfully simple. Unlike the traditional banking model, no minimum balances, no transaction limits, no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time, free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who found the customizable business checking solution that admires their bravery. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co. That's novo.co slash commentary. Plus, commentary magazine listeners get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co slash commentary to sign up for free. novo.co slash commentary novo platform inc is a fintech not a bank banking services provided by middlesex federal savings fa member fdic terms and conditions apply and of course i want to talk to you about expressvpn you don't want to be going around on these unencrypted networks that everybody uses you're so excited to find your wi-fi you need your wi-fi you go into a you go into a coffee shop, they got Wi-Fi. Well, 
that's great for you, but it isn't because any hacker, a 12 year old, a 12 year old hacker can get, figure out how, how to see your data, steal your data, sell it for a thousand bucks and compromise your credit rating and your life and your history uh, with, but, you know, with very, very simple technology. And that's why you need ExpressVPN because ExpressVPN creates an encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet and prevents hackers from stealing your sensitive data. Uh, it would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption, and it's easy to use. You fire up the app, click one button to get protected, and it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more, so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary, and you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash commentary. Okay, so let's turn to Ukraine. Um, uh, again, we find ourselves in the bizarre position, not bizarre, but sort of amazing how uh, the Ukrainians continue to hold out, hold on, uh, you know, uh, create uh, an incredibly frustrating and difficult situation for Russian soldiers, killing Russian soldiers, disabling Russian armored material. And yet we still have the sense that the Russians haven't yet delivered the kind of coup de gras that they can deliver that will really punch the stuffings out of you know out of ukrainian civil society and the ukrainian infrastructure and everything like that so um uh you know we're on this uh it's almost like we're just sort of dancing on the edge of a precipice and the dance is very heartening uh and the precipice is still there Noah, you have. Yeah, that's an accurate assessment. Um, <clears throat> what there's not a whole lot of news on the military front besides Russian attempts to envelop and encircle uh, Ukrainian positions and cities. And the um, news is gradually shifting over to the coverage of the horrific humanitarian disaster that is unfolding in places like Mariupol, which is surrounded, Kharkiv, which is not surrounded, and it's resupplyable, but it is uh, decimated. And you're talking about many millions of people who are literally starving, who are melting snow for water, who have no access to medication or medical services, um, elderly infants. Uh, and we're starting to see pictures of that, and it is absolutely grotesque. Um, to the extent that we can glean what uh, Russia's um, strategy is here for achieving tactical control of Ukraine, which I still don't see happening anytime in the next three months. Um, nevertheless, that's the attempt, and they seem to be doing their best to secure um, the power generating capabilities in the country, specifically nuclear plants. They've captured the Zaporozhizhia nuclear plant. They're making a drive to the southern Ukraine nuclear plant, um, which is in the middle of the country above Mykolaiv. And uh, obviously, they took Chernobyl very early in the campaign because it is right on the border with Belarus. And the news this morning is that well, there's no power in um, uh, Chernobyl and the IAE has lost all contact with the facility and the generators only have about 48 hours worth of backup power to keep cooling these nuclear fuel rods. And none of us being a nuclear fuel expert, we still understand that these rods uh, are radioactive, they heat up on their own, unless they're cooled, they will continue to heat up to unsustainable uh, temperatures, at which point they literally melt through the floor into a, a giant vat of water, which creates a, a steam event, and that's how you get a nuclear meltdown. Um, and that's obviously very, very dangerous. But the prospect of a, a radiological event that impacts Europe, I think, is a really serious wild card. Um, because it's perfectly imaginable, and if it were to occur, given the confrontational mood on the continent, I don't know if you can contain the uh, public outcry uh, in the event that um, Central Europe is enveloped in a cloud of radioactivity forces, you know, many tens of millions of people to evacuate the continent. That's obviously a very worst case scenario, but it's uh, one that it would take a failure of imagination not to envision. Well, that's a cheerful. <laughs> you have redefined crushing morosity in our time, Noah. That's why We're I don't have much bandwidth here. for just about any other issue. <laughs> we were sitting here talking about, you know, 
the Ukrainians are, you know, holding up their end and weird stuff's going on about whether Pol- Polish planes can be we can get into sent that to Ramstein to, Air Force Base and then shipped over to Ukraine. And Well, an ongoing uh, discussions were... between Russia and Ukraine about us, you know, about what that's also happening in some sort of the humanitarian quarters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is <laughs> some uh, conflicting reports about whether they're being observed or not observed. Um, most suggest they're not being observed. And, um, you know, this is, again, this, we talked about this yesterday. This is the Syria playbook. This is Aleppo and Homs. You, you know, you use the humanitarian corridors to allow the, the uh, Ukrainian troops to regroup and you hit them when they regroup. Um, and then, you know, once you've completed whatever this farcical humanitarian corridor is, you have a rhetorical license to declare anybody who's left behind to be an enemy combatant. That's you know, the worst case scenario. And it looks like it's within an ace of being played out. This mixed story is actually really confusing um, to the degree that you can see what we're, what is public, and we don't see a lot that's going on behind the scenes, uh, is that uh, there was put negotiations, much of which were far too public and shouldn't have been as public as they, as they were, for Ukraine to provide its leftover MiGs from the Cold War, which is all, uh, I'm sorry, Poland to provide its, its MiGs, which is all that Ukrainians know how to fly, uh, into Ukraine, uh, Poland gets the better end of the deal because the United States guarantees to replace all its inventory with uh, updated New F-16s. Planes. Yeah. Right, which is what they want. And then so Poland says, okay, well, our, Blinken had said, but this is always a decision for the Polish government. It's not our decision. And Poland says, okay, we're going to transfer this to an American airbase, and then you can do it. And then um, Blinken says, well, wait a minute, publicly, the, or I'm sorry, the Pentagon says, wait a minute. Pentagon, pu- yeah. Yeah. Um, we're, th- this is extremely escalatory. And we've known this because I brought this to the podcast days ago. Russia had said any plane that flies over NATO's borders into contested airspace will be regarded as a belligerent and all the implications that arise from that. Didn't say anything no, not about just any plane, transport. not just any plane, where the plane launches from. Because in this right, case, these are Polish planes, airfield. not American planes. But if, if they take off from Ramstein Air Force Base, any NATO airfield. then the Russians will consider the location of the plane as part of the battle plan and will say that this American facility was the staging ground for this violation of airspace and that we are therefore involved in the war. Right. But the, it's important to listen to what the Russians don't say as much as they do say. They did not say anything about overland transport, in part because I think they don't have the capacity or capability to execute interdiction, to execute missions that would interdict weapons shipments across NATO's borders in the west of the country. I just don't think they have the, the capacity um, right now to, to do that without sustaining severe losses of their air power. Um, and missiles aren't going to do the job. And plus, it would be severely escalatory on, on its own right. So. They didn't say anything about overland transport. I don't know anything about the logistics of moving fixed wing aircraft across the border via truck, via train, what have you. It might be very, very difficult to the point where it's prohibitive, but it might not be. And then what are we doing talking about flying aircraft from Ramsan Air Base? I mean, it just shouldn't even be in the cards. So what? why are we having a public debate with ourselves over this? But we're uh, not. And the, the, so, the, the like weird theory say, is that they're doing this to provide cover for ambiguity when these planes just somehow show up over ukrainian airspace well so the so the you know again you don't know what's going on and you know the the fog of war is very thick people seem to be blaming the polish foreign minister for walking around bragging that he that you know this was his innovation and it therefore became a public i the idea went public uh so that yeah if somehow these craft for in whatever way had somehow gotten into ukraine from poland without fingerprints on them however they would have gone that would have been one thing but now it was a public matter that they would be flown there now by the way why they have to be flown there from an american base is not clear either i mean why can't they be flown from a polish base Uh, none of it none of it follows precisely and um and I, I mean, it just strikes me not knowing anything about the order of battle that if you have a plane on the back of a truck or, you know, I mean, first of all, it's whatever, you know, some kind of overland vehicle or train or something like that, that's a pretty easy target from the air for the Russians if the Russians are in the air. 
you know, I mean, it's a, you know, trucks going 60 miles an hour, plane flies, you know, flies 200 miles an hour. They are, but Western conservative estimates, again, and we don't have, we have imperfect information, but conservative estimates from the West, not Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, is that more aircraft have been lost in combat operations than any nation has sustained since 1991, since the Gulf War. Right. Uh, By Russians, you mean? Russian aircraft. Russian, yeah, Russian aircraft. Yeah, yeah. it's no. So anyway, it's a it's a weird story. But um, the Pentagon statement yesterday was so um, blunt uh, and so uh, definitive. Uh, it seemed like somebody had a tantrum. I mean, I, you know, that's where the fog award doesn't quite come in. I mean, they were like. Uh, we are not doing this. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking for Kirby's uh, statement. Um, Cause the, the it, language... it also, it also made yeah. me think I had this sort of switch yesterday. Um, up until yesterday, I had thought that there was some possibility that the U S would be involved in some, some way that could be described as um, actively participating in, in in the war um because of uh, building public sentiment i don't i don't think that is ever happening actually because of this in part yeah but in yeah large so part. what kirby what the kirby statement which obviously comes from the highest reaches of the government he's not writing it himself um alone you know we are now in contact with the polish government as we have said, the decision about whether to transfer Polish-owned planes to Ukraine is ultimately one for the Polish government. We will continue consulting with our allies and partners. But Poland's proposal shows just shows just some of the complexities this issue presents. The prospect of fighter jets at the disposal of the government of the United States of America, that phrase being in the Polish statement, departing from a U.S. NATO base in Germany to fly into airspace that is contested with Russia over Ukraine, raises serious concerns for the entire NATO alliance. It is simply not clear to us that there is a substantive rationale for it. We will continue to consult with Poland and our other NATO allies about this issue and the difficult logistical challenges it presents, but we do not believe Poland's proposal is a tenable one. Like, you didn't have to use that language. Say, uh, what are you, crazy? Is essentially, what, what are you people, nuts? Are you out of your mind? I mean, that's sort of in the middle of a war. <laughs> that's a very, so I think they're basically there seems to be something slightly personal about it. I don't know. You know, almost like you idiot. What are you doing? Issuing this statement? Like, are you, you know, now we have to spend a day dealing with this, you know, you have an air force fly it into Ukraine yourself. And that is of course the really big question. Yeah. Why, that's, why... that's the problem here. There's, <laughs> we have a lot of very, Although very Poland nervous... is in the NATO Alliance, by we, the way. Right. So exactly. It, it, what difference does it make if it flies from Poland? Yeah because they would drag us into war. We have some very nervous allies on the frontier here, which is why this outburst was coupled with the dispatch of two very sophisticated anti-air batteries to Poland. Um, they could they can make a mistake too. They, they're very, very skittish about having active Russian campaigns of uh, territorial acquisition on their border as they very well should be. And yeah, making them a little bit more anxious about their position vis-a-vis Washington doesn't help. It's very, uh, it's, uh, you know, that's why it's hard to do this kind of analysis day, day in, day out when you don't know, you know, you don't quite know the facts. But clearly, uh, the Biden administration wanted uh, the world to know that um, it wasn't going to do this uh, in no uncertain terms. And um, yeah, so Abe's, Abe's sense that uh, there would never be uh, a change in the say no fly zone policy um, that may be, you know, there, there's, there's strength in that ba- based on this. Although again, you know, uh, the, you know, the, um, the Holocaustal damage hasn't started yet. I mean, we're seeing terrible things and we're seeing stories of Mariupol about, you know, bodies on the streets and all of that stuff that um, Noah talked about, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not the kind of, uh, it's not the blitz, you know, it's not Dresden yet. And, uh, and uh, that's where we start getting into territory that, uh, I mean, I, that, I, yeah, you just, you just have to know where to look for it. 
go to the Times of London, quote, Kharkiv's hospitals reveal the hideous cost of Putin's invasion, and you will be confronted with uh, images and scenes um, that Europe has not experienced in 80 years. Oh, no, no. I, I'm not saying that what's happened now isn't like a horror beyond words. But, you know, we have we haven't seen I mean, you know, Aleppo, which a city that was utterly uh, destroyed, um, you know, is the closest thing to what 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 we're talking about here. And uh, most people were shielded from the images of Aleppo because, frankly, you know, it's something in Syria and Syria's and, you know, we don't like any we don't like any of the combatants in Syria. I mean, we uh, are staring down much. the barrel of a starvation campaign aimed at 400,000 people. Right. They no, still have the we're internet. staring. We're staring down the battle. We're saying so we're staring down the barrel, but we're not in the barrel or the barrel or the or the weapon has not discharged yet. That's the one wild card for Abe's, you know, uh, Abe's analysis here um, is that we're still somewhere. We're still somewhere in the in the beginning stages, like the, uh, you know, we're still waiting for the Russians to say, all right, enough is enough already. And then, you know, like we're, you know, we're, we're, if we're all in, we're all in, you know, we're shoveling our chips into the table. We are gonna, we are gonna, you know, inflict maximum damage. Uh, I don't know. I display think, of, yeah, go ahead. The, Part of the um, the issue is that there's mostly having to do with, I think, technology. There's there's so many ways to channel your sympathy and your emotion uh, now about what's happening. Like I can't there, any video I watch online is prefaced by a sort of commercial of, of some sort, an ad to give uh, to to Ukraine in some fashion. Um so uh, people are watching, watching the videos and going to do that. And then um, there's this campaign with uh, um, Airbnb. Have you, are you aware of this? Yeah. You know, where you can just, it's, it's, a, it's a way to immediately get a lot of money or some to money. Ukrainians. In, in, yeah, you, yeah you, rent, you, rent a, you rent an apartment in, in, in Ukraine and transfer the money uh, you know, uh, to the owner. And then the owner gets, you know, gets hard currency or you know whatever i don't even know what it goes into his bank account or something like that um it's it's interesting because i i mean how much of the population of ukraine can have something on on airbnb you know 0.1 percent i mean it's not nothing and the direct transfer of funds into individuals hands is probably a more efficient way of doing this at this moment than to you know give it to some international aid organization that has transaction costs and also right. doesn't really have a path in uh we don't right. we don't we don't really know um but on the but i'm just saying the effect on this end i think is is maybe to assuage some of the sort of helplessness in the face of it you know right yeah okay i want to switch gears in the last couple of minutes and abe doesn't know i'm going to do this but i'm going to do it anyway um there was huge news uh in the in the literary world yesterday uh, that is not something that happens very often because the literary world is a world that matters increasingly less and less in part as the literary world simply becomes another uh, proxy for, um, uh, you know, uh, counting by race and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, qu quotas, readership and book publishing and sorts of things that people want to read based on, uh, you know, politically correct understandings of who people are. But um, the last sort of living lion of post mid-century American writing, uh, Cormac McCarthy, who published his first novel in I think 1964, something like that is 88 years old, uh, obviously author of uh, Blood Meridian, No Country for Old Men, All the Pretty Horses, uh, Child of God. Um, uh, Road. And, and The Road, his last and I think probably most um, most commercially successful book, the uh, uh, post-apocalyptic novel uh, published, I think, 16 years ago. Uh, he's 88 years old, and the word came that uh, he, he is now, he will be publishing in November not one, but two novels, two linked novels that will be released three weeks apart. Um, and I, I, uh, I don't think there's been a literary event in 
many, many years or something that I would describe as a literary event. I'm not even sure that I can remember the last literary event. This is a literary event. I mean, this is sort of like the, the, the greatest living old American writer uh, releasing two books, one of which has been apparently in the works for 40 years, right? The Passenger. Yeah, I assumed it was never going to happen. Yeah. yeah. See, I am uh, I I am much more mixed on Cormac McCarthy than than Abe is, so I wanted Abe to talk a little bit about this. Well, I mean, oh, I'm not sure what to say. It's much easier to talk about artists that I I detest than the ones I like because it's it's harder to figure out why I like the ones I like, other than especially writers, other than that, just the 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 feeling that uh, they produce in me when I when I when I read them, but. McCarthy is fascinating, I think, stylistically, and um, I think maybe in terms that that um, a lot of our listeners might appreciate as well. Uh, stylistically, because I, he he has actually changed in many ways throughout his his writing. Um, his his most recent books, the most the, the big successes, are written in very straightforward, plain almost screenplay-like uh, language, especially No Country for Old Men, which essentially reads like a screenplay. And I think The Road was a, a bit like that too. Um, but the further back you go, the more complicated uh, his his work gets. And his he wrote a very strange, long, difficult, I loved it, novel called Sutri that was um, really Joycean, um, actually. Well, you um, would say that he's sort of like, he was the last disciple of, Faulkner, uh, and then and, yeah, and, then, and, and, and then wrote about wrote about and began writing about Faulkner-like characters, and he was sort of like, you think you think Faulkner's Snopes family in Yoknapatawpha County was sick? Where do you get a load of the people I'm about to introduce you to? We're talking about necrophiliac. We're talking about cannibal necrophiliac. Uh, you know, incest produced um, monsters that you're supposed to end up feeling so- sorry for. Yeah. That's not that's not suchery, by the way. That was what no, was that? that's Outer, Child of God. Child of God, right? Child yeah. of God. But yeah. those books, Child of God and Outer Dark, and the first one, I forgot, I forgot the first one. Or, but uh, or, those the are Orchid Eater. The Orc. The, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The Orchid Eaters. Yeah. Yeah. That those were um, uh, the Orchid very, Keeper. Sorry. Or Orchid Keeper, right? Yeah. yeah very, uh, very Faulknerian. Yeah. Um, so he's so he went from being Faulkner to being Hemingway a little bit. I mean, not quite, not quite. As no, no, I think that's yeah, yeah. As Hemingway, yeah, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think with with a little tour of, of Joyce in between. Yeah, but um, ideologically, or it's not quite ideology, but um, his the way he thinks about the world is also interesting. He is um, a hardcore right winger. Uh, I don't mean politically necessarily i mean he is uh he a a huge part of his books i think is just that he sort of wants to testify about the reality of evil in the world as a force um and in interviews he's he's said that he is he he is i don't recall if he said the word right wing or um ultra conservative or something like that um but but he in both he is both to testify about the evil, but the reality of evil in the world and the dangerous folly of of human schemes. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in that sense, he is very much a um, I mean, the interesting question with him morally or over time or as a reader is um, the um, the lubriciousness with which he portrays evil in his books suggests that he's far more attracted to, to it you know he is a he is obviously like uh trying to um uh describe it uh in a way that will have just an almost overpowering impact but then it's almost like it has a kind of um sensual quality you know where you're like you seem to be enjoying this a little too much i don't know it's a very they can well, you be know, very very difficult to read because you know how so... they, some authors say they have to sort of love their villains you know, yeah. to, to do a good job in rendering yeah. them. He's got to, he's yeah. got to love the evil a little bit too. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting it thing because uh, no one his age and he is 88 or he'll be 89. I think when the books come out, um, no one his age has ever produced a major work of literature. I mean, maybe the best book that I can think of by a man 
you know, in his 80s was Saul Bellow's Ravelstein, which is a wonderful portrait of Alan Bloom, uh, is a very not good novel. And it's basically five attempts to write the same novel that are sort of stitched together, like almost five different perspectives on the same topic. And he just sort of put them together. Uh, uh, and so you, you know, read sort of essentially the same story five times. Um, if he pulls it off, uh, and these are, these are, you know, readable or, you know, like overpowering books, that will be a singular accomplishment. Anyway, I just thought it's interesting because, you know, like Jonathan Franzen, who was bidding fair to be, you know, sort of like the next great American writer. So he had a novel come out like three or four months ago. And, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, he published a novel, actually, he would be on the cover of magazines. And it came out and it's the first of a three volume trilogy. And yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, this is not, you know, we've, we've gone into a period in which this stuff just doesn't matter to people. And the only thing that matters again is, is, is represent is, is these issues of cultural representation, which sort of overwhelm and overpower everything. Christine, are you a McCarthy reader? Yeah, I, well, I haven't read all of them. Um, the last one I read of his was The Road. Uh, I still haven't seen the movie, even though I love Viggo Mortensen, who I think plays the the dad. Oh, it's, un, it's, un, it's unwatchable. Okay, that 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 solves it for me. Then I'll I don't have to waste those two hours. But I will say I, I by to to what you're saying about evil Abe and and how he embraces it. I mean, he is an unusual writer in that like the book he dedicates The Road to his son and and because I guess as an act of love, obviously that's very nice, but the book is all about this, how evil can lurk even in the most dedicated father and the son has to wit bear witness to it. And I won't spoil the ending, but it's, but this father is also very complicated. He's also very protective. He, I just, I loved that character because it does, he understands human nature. He also understands that um, you cannot be simplistic about goodness because goodness always has its twin in, in uh, a temptation to evil. And that comes through so much in the road. And I don't generally love post-apocalyptic fiction. I have a son who's a big sci-fi reader. He's always, but he, that one was great. I really enjoyed that one. Well, you know what? I, it's fine. I'm glad you, I just remembered this because um Almost every time John says, keep the candle burning, it reminds me of something in the road. There's this recurrent theme in the road where throughout this, the post-apocalyptic uh, journey of this father and son, he's teaching the son to carry the fire, Right, is what he says. Yeah. Um, which is um, also, it's also kind of uh, Judaic, you know, um, well, he is very old. I mean, yes, ultimately, yes. When we say things like Old Testament, you know, it's a. But I mean, this is a this is a a world. Um, the world is alive, um, and pregnant itself. Like the landscape is alive and pregnant, and mostly it's a threat. You know, there are a couple of books like All the Pretty Horses in which the landscape is not a threat. But, uh, you know, it's much more elegiac. Uh, and that's a sort of beautiful book about sort of like a passage from, you know, innocence to experience. Uh, obviously, his kind of nicest, I think his nicest book um, uh, in its own way. Um, but uh, the landscape is a danger. And the landscape is a danger because human beings are a danger to each other. And this is some world, even though a lot, some of his books are set in the 19th century, it's kind of a world without God and it's a world it's, it's sort of Nietzschean, you know, without God, everything is permitted. And you really do get a sense that particularly in no country for old men and that great villain that he created Chigger, uh, that, um, uh, left untrammeled left, left without restraint. This is what human nature is. It is remorseless and ceaseless and homicidal and purposeless in its in its in its homicidal nature. So in that sense, it is the most deeply darkly conservative worldview. Oh yeah, and then also in No Country for Old Men, and it just took me takes me a while to remember these things. Um, that the older uh, sheriff character in the book has has this um, rant that I appreciate about. <clears throat> he's talking about all the drug war violence and the killings going on and he says you know if you ask me this all started when people stopped saying please and thank you 
and uh, yes, yes, man, the decay and, of morals is a, yes, is a strong yes. theme, even in the in the post apocalyptic age. Yes. Their morals and manners. <laughs> All right, we got to go. Uh, so so much for our literary disquisition here. Uh, we will uh, be back tomorrow for uh, Abe No and Christina. I'm John Pod Horitz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>